You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. When a team wins the Super Bowl, what's the first thing you hear the winning Super Bowl quarterback say in the camera? We're going to Disney World. Yes, well done. Yeah, whenever uh, Matthew Stafford, quarterback of the Rams, when they won the Super Bowl, first thing he says, I'm going to Disney World. You just won the Super Bowl, what are you going to do? Disney World. Fun fact, did you know that's a paid advertisement? That started, I think, in the 80s with Terry Bradshaw. Disney told Terry Bradshaw, if you say right after you win, I'm going to Disney World, we'll pay you like 50 Gs and give you a free all-expenses trip to Disney World. You can't believe anything anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, they don't just say that. They get paid to say that. And what we learn in Acts chapter 9 is if you were to ask a new Christian, Christian, what are you going to do? You just followed Jesus. What's next? They would say, I'm going to endure trials. I'm going to go to pain town, essentially. You walk, pick them up out of the waters of baptism. What's next for you? A lot of struggle. And that's what we see for Saul, this new Christian. A lot of pain the minute he accepts Jesus. Welcome to following Jesus, Saul. Here come the trials. And we saw this foreshadowed as Pastor Wilson spoke last week about Saul's conversion. We saw that before Saul ever walked down the aisle or prayed a prayer in Jesus' name, Luke tells us that God chose Saul. We could spend the whole time on that. That's crazy. And that Saul, like all Christians, would endure suffering. Look at verse 15. We saw this last week. Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How often do you hear a pastor say that to some new Christians? I need to show you how much you're going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Pastor David, how do you feel about adding that to the RCC 101 membership class? Hey, before you join RCC, we want to make sure you understand how much you must suffer before you join our family. Let's put that in the covenant. Like, I commit to God, the city, this church family, and I commit to enduring suffering. Well, if we read the New Testament, I mean, that's pretty, pretty common. The biblical pattern is suffering, then glory. The cross, then the crown. Is that the pattern for your life? And if somebody, if any preacher tells you that glory or success or riches are available to you if you come to Christ in this life, he's a wolf. And you need to change the channel. Because suffering is promised to the Christian. Honest question for you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or even considering following Jesus, consider this. If you knew uniting yourself to Christ objectively made your life harder, maybe even made your life worse, if you knew you would have to suffer for the sake of his name, would you still want him? Would he still be worth it to you? And what we see in Acts 9 is if the answer, your answer to that question is not a definitive yes, then you're going to bail on Jesus. 
Because suffering is guaranteed, and you need to be ready, and you need to think he's worth it. Saul's life, the Bible's whole writings tell us there's no such thing as an easy, comfortable Christian life. It makes sense. You follow a crucified Savior, right? And so are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to endure a hard Christian life? Well, let's see what happens. As we jump into Acts chapter 9, so Saul miraculously becomes a Christian. The killer of Christians now becomes the preacher for Christ. And what are Saul's first action steps once he becomes a Christian? Now, these are, these are not my main points. These are just five sub-points that I, I think we need to see because they're in the text. We have a ton of new Christians in this room, baby Christians. Here, Saul just follows Jesus, so here's a great step-by-step guide of the things he does immediately upon accepting Christ that you need to do as well. And you could have been following Jesus forever, but you still need to do these things. Just look at these real quick. Number one, Paul, as soon as he becomes a Christian, he undergoes a worldview shift. Look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. So this is a living metaphor. Saul was blind to the spiritual realities of the world. Then God gave him sight. And that's usually the first step for every Christian, right? Like you realize, man, I I may have sincerely believed what I believed before Jesus, but I was wrong. And now God has helped me see that Jesus is the Christ. And I really believe that Saul, before he was a Christian, he was genuine in his wrong beliefs. Like, I don't think you go around dragging Christians and killing them unless you genuinely believe you're serving God, right? Like on on 9-11, the terrorists that blew up the World Trade Towers, I don't think anyone questioned that they were genuine or sincere in their beliefs. They really believed that they were serving God, and they were sincerely wrong. Now, that's not the message culture tells you. Culture today says, believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just be sincere about it. Be genuine about it. Oh, you believe that the Easter bunny created the world, and your life's mission is to adopt all the bunnies and care for them? That's wonderful. You should definitely do that. Go and make the world a better place. As long as you're sincere, you can believe whatever you want. The Bible ain't having any of that. Acts 9 and other places tell us you are blind and dumb if you do not have Christ. You may be genuine, but you're genuinely wrong. It is not the sincerity of your faith or the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. What I mean by that is you can sincerely and genuinely believe that you can fly. But it is not your your faith in your flying ability that will save you once you jump off the Grand Canyon. Your arms need to work. And if they don't, you're done. And in the same way, you can be here and be a sincere Muslim like I was when I was a kid. You can be a sincere atheist. You can be a sincere Scientologist. But sincerity will not save you. Only Christ will. And so Saul sees... I'm sincere, but I'm wrong. I'm blind. God lifts the veil, he sees, and it shifts his whole worldview. You see that? And he begins consuming information about Jesus. He's humble, and he realizes, like, I got this whole life thing off. Maybe you came to that realization recently. And so, what I want to encourage you to do is, if you're a new Christian, is take the step that Paul does and have a worldview shift and take advantage of all the information RCC offers you. Go to RCC 101. Join a gospel community and stoop group. Take foundations. Eventually apply for RCC Institute. Let God take the scales off your eyes and give you spiritual sight. Now, 
Next thing that Saul does after he has a worldview shift is he, he experiences baptism. I'm just going to breeze through these because they're not my main point. But look at verse 18. After he has a worldview shift, he rises and was baptized. This is pretty simple. Everyone in the New Testament that believes Jesus is Lord, they eventually, right after, get baptized upon profession of faith. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't got, entered the waters of baptism after you said, I want to follow Jesus, then you're not following the biblical pattern. And so Saul says, I'm on team Jesus publicly, which is a lot for a guy who was on team not Jesus. Um, I could have said that better, but you get the idea. <laughs> Uh, just the oratory ability of Pastor Mutasif today is just astounding. Anyway, third thing he does is he joins a church. Verse 19, in taking food, he was strengthened. That's not, you know, in my main points, but that's, it's a great life verse. I need to take food and be strengthened. You, uh, feel free to apply that after the sermon this morning. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, that, what, what's happening here is, is Saul... Has a worldview shift, he gets baptized, and then he commits to a local church. It says some days. In fact, in Galatians 1.18, Saul says that he stayed in Damascus three years. So he commits to this local church, these, this body of believers, for three years. And he learns from them. He's changed by them. We see in Saul's conversion that conversion is individual, but it's not individualistic. Saul needed Ananias. Saul needed Peter. Saul needs Barnabas, which we'll see in a moment. Christian, you need other Christians too. So he joins the church, then fourthly, Saul, as soon as he comes to Christ, verse 20, immediately, I love that verse, he immediately, not, not, it's not, it doesn't say he took a new member class first, it doesn't say he had a year of training first, immediately he preached. Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Tasmanian devil has become Mr. Rogers. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? I thought this guy came to arrest Christians, now he's preaching Christ. You see, what happens is when you become a new person, you also receive a new purpose. And in fact, your most effective years of evangelism might be your first year in Christ. Because all the people in your old life know how messed up you are. And when they see you preaching Jesus, they might be interested too. Immediately, he evangelizes. And the last thing he does once he becomes a Christian, is endure trial. The rest of this passage is Saul enduring hardship after hardship. Hardship outside the church by non-Christians and hardship inside the church by Christians. Jews want to kill him and Christians want to reject him. And this is what I want to spend the majority of our time on. And so this message is for anyone who follows Jesus or anyone who's even interested in following Jesus, I want to be clear about what you are to expect. Let's look at Saul. Verse 22 it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. This is likely spiritual strength. He grew in his faith and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So how did Saul grow spiritually? Well, I think he did those five things that I just mentioned. But notice it says, he grew stronger and he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What does that mean? Well, this Greek word proving is actually... It means to join or put together. And so the image we get here is Saul looking at the Old Testament and putting together the prophecies of Jesus and the life of Jesus. He's saying, whoa, Jesus is all up in here. And it's strengthening him. Seeing Christ from the Bible empowers Saul. And it will empower you. And it confounds and astounds and frustrates the Jewish non-Christians because they're totally unable to counter the claims of the former student of Gamaliel. I mean, Saul is an Old Testament expert. 
Now he's taking the Old Testament and saying, yeah, this is all about Jesus. So they're a little upset. And let's just pause and zoom out here for a second. I think this is hilarious. Stephen died from preaching Christ from the Old Testament. In fact, Saul helped kill Stephen for preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And who does God replace Stephen with? The guy who led the murder of Stephen. I mean, the mission of God is unstoppable. You see it all over Acts. One guy's preaching Christ from Isaiah. We kill him. Now Saul's preaching Christ from Isaiah. It's crazy. And these, these people opposed to the gospel want to do to Saul what they did to Stephen. These fools ain't loyal. You know, one minute Saul's our captain. The next he's our target. Verses 23 to 25, I mean, things get really hard for Saul once he becomes a Christian. When many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Born identity up in here. He's just trying to run away from the people trying to kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Man, don't tell me the Bible is boring. This is a crazy story. This is escape from Alcatraz up in here. You know, before there was Indiana Jones, there was Damascus Saul. I'm just imagining Saul with his whip, just escaping from Damascus. And Saul didn't like snakes either, just like Indiana Jones. He gets bitten by him later. And I just imagine, like, this has got to be a big basket. You know, like the, the, fam- the uh, fancy basket company, Longerburger? I think they got their start in Acts chapter 9. Like, you've got to have a big, sturdy basket for a human being to fit in it and lowered from a wall. I mean, just think about how scary that must have been. You're in a basket being lowered from a, t- a tall wall. If the rope breaks, you're done. If the basket breaks, I mean, a basket can't be that sturdy, right? You're done. This is scary. Saul's going through a lot of trauma here. Now, interesting side note. Do you notice who helped Saul escape? You see what it says? Verse 25, his disciples took him by night and helped him escape. I mean, Saul just became a Christian and he has disciples already. That's pretty interesting. Do you have disciples? Are you making disciples right now? Whether you've been in Christ for 50 years or five minutes, you should be making disciples. Now, I know that's intimidating to a lot of you who just accepted Christ a few weeks ago. I think we, over, we overthink what discipleship really is. I think when we think we're discipling someone, we think, I'm the guru, and you are my young Padawan. Follow me as we defeat Darth Vader. Let me teach you all the ways of life, which, let's be honest, you are not qualified to do that. I'm not either. Discipling someone just simply means helping them follow Jesus better. You know, when I first became a Christian, you know what I did to disciple people? I took three of my friends met them on different days for lunch, and we just read the Bible together. I met with Sam on Tuesday lunch. I met with Cotter Wednesday lunch. I met with Nate Thursday lunch. And God used that time of mutual discipleship to grow each other in our faith. Now Sam is translating the Bible into other languages at seminary, and Cotter and Nate are pastors. Not because I did anything special. We just opened up the Bible and read it. Are you making disciples today, like Saul was? And who knows, if you do, you might be They might help you in your escape from Damascus. They might provide a basket for you that saves your life. 
So we should be making disciples for multiple reasons. Now, here's the point of this story. The point, like, why, Luke, why do you have this story in here? Luke says, because I want you to see following Jesus is not easy. It's not easy, but he is with us, and Jesus' grace is sufficient for us. You know, in 2 Corinthians, this same Saul explains what happens looking back, and he rattles off all the difficulties he's experienced so far in the Christian life. And in 2 Corinthians 11, which, by the way, 2 Corinthians is the book to read if you're going through a tough time right now. And at the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Saul just recaps how hard his life's been. Since he followed Jesus, he says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. That is uh, one lash short of dying, whipping him to the brink of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I mean, Saul kind of deserved that one, but anyway. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. So we got a Jack from Titanic, Titanic experience here, except he survives. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from river, rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas, like all sorts of terrain he's dealing with trouble here. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and often gone out without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then beside all this, Saul says, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. Here it is. Recap. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aratus kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window in the city wall to escape from him. See, Saul is, is passing a waiver across the table to you Christians saying, make sure you sign in a form of acknowledgement that suffering is coming your way before you follow Jesus. I want to make sure you consent to what you're about to step into. Now, sure, living in a fallen world is hard no matter what your faith is. You could be Hindu, Muslim, nothing, Christian. Life is hard, Right? But following Jesus in a fallen world means even more suffering oftentimes for us. Saul later preaches, just a few chapters later in Acts 14. This is his first sermon to a group of unbelievers. He says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How about that? Hey, you want to follow Christ? Just make sure you know many tribulations you must go through first. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Does that sound good? Sounds pretty hard. So my challenge to you, Christian, is do not be surprised when life is hard. It's like, look at the Bible. In fact, perspective shift here. I would argue we should be thankful and surprised when life feels good and easy, not when it feels hard. You know, American Christians are so fickle because we're so used to everything being awesome. Well, God promises it's not going to happen in the Christian life. 
There's a, a doctrine called total depravity. It essentially means that it is only by God's common grace that this world is not in flames. If you took biology 101 in high school or college, you know this to be true. Scientists have another name for total depravity. It's called entropy. Entropy means because of sin, everything is on its way towards decay, towards chaos, towards disorder. If you don't believe in total depravity, if you don't believe in entropy, just try building a Lego tower in a daycare. Everything heads towards chaos. Or try driving in Baltimore without getting a fine or a parking ticket. Good luck. If you really don't believe in total depravity and entropy, call Comcast customer service. That will convert you very quickly. It might take a while, but you'll get there. You see, a Christian understands, like Saul, if there's anything good going on in my life, it is God's grace restraining the full effects of sin on my life and in this world. I deserve far worse than what God is giving me. You know, a Christian says, if I get a warm meal today, it is God's grace. I have something to be grateful for. You know, a Christian says, every moment all my kids are asleep at the same time is God's grace. All the the moms are like, amen. (laughs) A Christian says, any moment my, my body is not in pain is God's grace restraining what should be happening. If there's someone who's there to hug me today or to squeeze my hand this morning, if someone loves me despite all my sin and all my flaws, this is God's grace restraining the full effects of sin and what I deserve. Christians are to be joyful pessimists. Joyful pessimists. Because they see how bad things should be and could be and rejoice that God's common grace withholds the full effect of sin on our lives. We should not be surprised by tough times. We should be grateful and celebrating good times. Now, you may be here and not be a Christian. Really glad you're here. Even you would say the the life anyone lives is difficult, right? And non-Christians would agree that these life difficulties, in fact, serve us many ways, right? They make us tougher. You might have heard that saying, tough times don't last, tough people do. You know what I'm talking about? In fact, uh, Jack Dempsey, Dorsey, Jack Dorsey, he's the founder of Twitter. He got a nice paycheck this week. He's doing pretty good. Jack Dorsey recently said in a podcast that I learn the most when I'm uncomfortable. In fact, he says, I learn the most, I grow the most when I'm suffering. So even in the non-Christian, Jack Dorsey's not a Christian, even in the non-Christian perspective, suffering serves us in some ways, right? But for the Christian, Saul wants to show us in a unique, eternal way, our suffering, our basket escapes from the city of Damascus do more than just make us tougher. They accomplish for us the eternal purpose God set for us from the beginning of time. For you to be made into the version of you that looks the most like Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, which is a diatribe all about suffering, Peter says, suffering does to your faith what a fiery furnace does to a a raw piece of gold. It burns away all the impurities. You see, only when gold enters into the harshest, bluest, 
fiercest flames will the toxic, unnecessary, diluting dross be burned away and the gold then molded to the will of the goldsmith. And it's only when the gold leaves this fierce fire is its final shape then formed. You see, Peter tells us, Saul tells us that Jesus uses our trials, our horrible life circumstances, not to toughen you up, but to soften you, to mold you, to purify you. And this is in the Old Testament too. God says in Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Notice all throughout the Bible, God does not describe this fire as an unquenched, disastrous forest fire that God sends to demolish your life. Suffering is a furnace, he says. It's a controlled fire. It's a refiner's fire. It's a fire with purpose. Now you might be here and asking, well, what exactly, how in the world could this horrible thing I'm dealing with right now, the thing that's making me weep at night right now, be, have a purpose? How can this fiery suffering be molding me? Like, why would God intentionally give me horrible parents who make me feel like I'm not good enough? Why would God give you a difficult residency where you get no breaks? Why does God give me kids that just won't stop crying? Why does God, why did he give me these backstabbing friends? Why did he give me this unhealthy roommate? Why, why, why in the world did this painful social interaction happen last week? What the heck is that for? Why would he give me these kids who are so rebellious or this marriage that is so difficult? to mold you into the version of you that you will look like forever. A version of you that looks like Jesus Christ. You know, I heard someone say last week, they were going through a really difficult life experience. Like it genuinely hurt them. And they said, how can God take this bad thing and turn it into something good? And they were quoting Romans 8.28. If you've ever suffered, if you've ever been in the church, you know this verse. It's, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Famous verse, go-to verse, especially for people who are suffering, essentially means God takes all the bad things in our life and turns it into something we'll say, that's actually good. How can God take what I just experienced and make it good? I'm struggling to see the good, they said. Well, that person came back about a week later and said, I think I just realized what the good is in this bad. God is helping free me of my need to not be hated by people. He's freeing me to not need being liked by people. And he's using this really difficult circumstance to rid me of that need. Translation, he's using this hard thing to make me more like Jesus. And did you know that's actually the good that God defines in Romans 8.29, the verse right after Romans 8.28. What is the good? He's working all things together. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is what's happening. Saul is the same Saul in the basket situation. is the same Saul who wrote Romans 8. It's the same Saul who went through all these horrible life circumstances, all this crap, all this evil. 
He's saying every horrible thing in your life right now, from cockroaches running around your basement to nearly escaping murder, is accomplishing one thing. The one thing you and I want and need. It's conforming us into the person we will be for the rest of eternity. The person who looks just like Jesus. You see, each discomfort in my life is sent by God to make me into an Adam who has Jesus' selflessness, an Adam who has Jesus' patience, an Adam who has Jesus' endurance, an Adam who has Jesus' confidence and conviction and boldness, an Adam who finally somehow, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the fires of life's trials, looks a little bit, maybe a lot bit more, like Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus does not invite you to follow him so things can get easier for you. In fact, he follows you and promises they'll get harder. But he also promises you'll get him. You'll get him. And you'll be made like him. That's the promise. This last month has been uh, really challenging for me because all my kids have been in a cycle of sickness. One's sick, then the second is sick, then the third is sick. I have three sons. And then eventually, last week, it all culminated. They were all sick, and Armageddon happened. My wife got sick. Oh, my gosh. You see, no one cares when Dad gets sick, but when Mom gets sick, we are in hellfire. It was a challenge. So my, all my kids have double ear infections, pink eye. I don't know how they got poop in their eye, but they did. Um, yeah, fun fact, that's how you get pink eye. Anyway, they had stomach aches. They had diarrhea, vomiting. I mean, it has been a war zone in our home. And uh, this week, we went to the doctor, and the doctor prescribed my four-year-old amoxicillin, which is this white goo that tastes like death. <laughs> and my two-year-old was prescribed eye drops. I don't know if you know, but two-year-olds love eye drops. Just try it. <laughs> a lot of fun. You know, and so the first time we're given my four-year-old amoxicillin, he spits it out. So I had to like get the goo from the floor and like try and put it back in his mouth. That was really fun. And then uh, I'd give my two-year-old eye drops and um, you would have thought it was a, a, a prison war camp. <laughs> my wife is literally straddling my sons, holding them down and I'm holding their face and like forcing the amoxicillin. I'm not doing this, okay, but you get the idea. <laughs> I wanted to, but I... Like, it will not take the amoxicillin, man. And my two-year-old, I'm just doing eye drops. You think I'm, like, peeling off his toenails. Like, it was miserable. My seven-month-old baby son, he took it pretty good. But the older ones, oof. They don't want the medicine because it's uncomfortable. In fact, it hurts. But the doctor prescribed it to them because they needed to get better. You know, last week I was sick, and someone got me cough drop, cough medicine, and Sudafed, and all these other medicinal things. And I took the cough drop medicine, and it tasted just as horrible as it tasted when I was four years old, and I took it. It wasn't any less uncomfortable. But you know, when I grew up my perspective of that medicine changed. I sprinted to take it for two times a day as quickly as I could. Why? Because even though it was uncomfortable, 
it brought healing to me. You see, what God wants us to see this morning is that he's a good surgeon. And he only cuts to heal. He's a good doctor who only prescribes exactly what you need to be made like Jesus. And growing up in the Christian life means not flailing around when the medicine comes. It means yearning for it because you know it's what we need. And the good news this morning for you is that there is no medicine, there is no cut, there is no furnace that can hit you so hard that it will thwart God's sovereign plan for your life to bring you heavenward. You know, for Paul, for Saul, there was no city governor, there was no shipwreck, there was no imprisonment, there was no snake bite, there was no basket escape, there was no trial that could thwart God's sovereign plan to make him look just like Jesus and bring him home to Jesus. And once Saul got that, he became unstoppable. Look at what he says about trials at the end of 2 Corinthians. Looking back on all of them, he says, So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That, listen to this. This, make, this verse makes no sense to the world. That's why I take what? Pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and in the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God takes all the weaknesses you're going through right now, all the hardship, and magnifies his strength to glorify himself in your pain because his ultimate purpose is to display his power in your weakness and to make you more like Jesus through it all. You know, if you've been around RCC for the past year, it's pretty clear that our church is crushing it right now. Things are going awesome. We got baptisms. We got, man, members of our church, if you're a member of our church, can I just say, I'm so proud of you, and things are going phenomenal around here. We have so many new people coming. We have people coming to know Jesus. You know, like God is doing a miraculous work in RCC right now. And can I just be transparent with you just for a second without you holding this against me? Every now and then, I'll look at the success of our church, seeing all that God's doing, and the temptation will at least enter into my mind to think, hmm, I must be pretty good at my job. Like there are like over 300 people coming to hear me speak. Now, I'm not saying I give in to that, but it's a thought. And I think that's why over the last month, God has just broken me down to rid me of that thought. You know, my kids will not stop getting sick. There's diarrhea and vomit everywhere. It's funny to you, not to me. <laughs> Sherry and I got into a big argument this last week. Can the pastor say that? <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Now, she and I were able to work it out by God's grace and a lot of my repentance. <laughs> But, you know, like, isn't that the worst? Like, outside circumstances, inside circumstances, and then you, you're arguing with the person you love the most, and it just feels like death. Like, I, don't, I just want to stop feeling this pain. 
And I just want to give a shout out to all the men, all the husbands, the faithful fathers and, and husbands in this room. It is so hard to work all day to provide for your family and then get home and then work again. Everyone wants a piece of your time. No one's getting enough. And you, you, you're, you're doing dishes and you're wiping noses and you're changing diapers and you're working to provide and it's just exhausting, isn't it? And this week, I'll be honest with you, I, I was on my face just weeping to God. Because almost every night, my wife and I aren't sleeping. It's just our kids rotate who's awake. Everyone's sick. Everyone needs help. The church needs me. My family needs me. I got all these other things going on. And I'll just be honest, I'm, self, I'm selfish. I want to do my thing. And God is just interrupting my plans constantly, taking away my comfort constantly. So I'm battling all this and my own sin. And it just, it really exploded this week when I was, it was like a couple days ago, four, maybe four days ago. It was 3 a.m. in the morning and my, my four-year-old son Aiden wakes up and he's just screaming in agony. And he's crying out, Daddy, my stomach hurts. Daddy, it hurts. I, I, it hurts. And I, I don't know, I, I just lost it. I, I told my wife, you've got to take care of this for a moment. And I go in the other room, and I'm just yelling at God. What is your problem? What is your deal? I'm doing all this good work for you, and this is what you're giving me right now? Can we at least stagger the pain a little bit? Does it all have to be at once? I'm tired, God. Take some of it away. Why are you sending me this? That's what the word says. You send trial and pain. Why are you doing this to me? Stop it. Do you know Saul prayed the same thing in 2 Corinthians? He says, God sent Satan to torment me, to give me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn is. It could have been blindness. It could have been stomach pain. It could have been a betrayal of a friend. We don't know. But Saul gets on his knees and begs God, take it away. You know what God says? No. I will not take it away because I love you too much. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, you can never learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You will never sing and celebrate and believe Jesus is all you need until Jesus takes away everything you have and all you're left with is him. And you get a new joy that can never be stripped from you. Satan, take my family, take my freedom, take my comfort, take my friends. You can't take Jesus from me. God is committed to something so much more significant than your comfort. He's committed to your holiness. He's committed to making you more like Jesus. And he will use the furnace to get you to the figure he wants you to be. And so, Christian, are you rejoicing in the flame this morning? You know, God may sent a, have sent a storm your way. Like, Jesus, are you taking a nap in it, knowing who sent the storm and what he is doing in the storm? 
Or are you like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, panicking because you're not the one in control? Saul says, escaping death by a basket was a gift. We should say the same about our trials. Now, as we move towards the end of the text, you know, outside trials, sickness, Satan attacking us, that's one thing. Makes sense that Satan would be trying to make my life miserable and strip away my faith. But there's another category of trials here that Saul goes through that's perhaps even more painful. One that's not outside in the world, but one that's inside in the church. Look what happens to Saul. He gets hit from all angles. Saul gives his life to Jesus. He escapes death by basket. He finally makes it to Jerusalem, verse 26. When he come to Jerusalem, this is where the church exploded. This is where Pentecost happened. Finally, I made it to the Mecca of Christianity. I'm safe now. And he attempted to join the disciples. Saul's like, whew, finally, I got some brothers and sisters to help me out. We'll take communion together. We'll play board games together. We'll have meals together. Let's sing some worship songs together. Kumbaya, my Lord, let's go. This is awesome, right? No. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, can you imagine how lonely he must have felt? Everyone in my old life is trying to kill me, and everyone in my new family doesn't want me. And you can't blame the Christians in some ways, right? Like if a, if a Nazi Gestapo leader in the 40s is like, ah, oh, I like Jews now. Where are you guys all hanging out? <laughs> you might be like, oh, we're not so sure about that one, buddy. He might be rejected too. I mean, this guy was killing Christians. You can't really blame them for being a little skeptical, right? But that doesn't make it any less painful for Saul. You know, this is a new kind of rejection for Saul. Outside trials are hard. Inside in the church trials tend to be even harder. Some of the worst pain in my life has been church hurt, maybe for you as well. Like, these are the people that were supposed to love me. These were... This is supposed to be Jesus' hands and feet, but it feels more like Satan's hands and feet to me. Here's some encouragement for you. If you've gone through rejection of the church, hurt in the church, Saul went through it too. It's all over the book of Acts. If you have church hurt, Saul says, join the club. To join a church is to sign up for church hurt. It's like if you sign up for football, you kind of expect to get hit. If you sign up to do life with people, you're going to get dinged. It's because the church is made up of people who haven't been through enough trials yet. It will be broken down to look more like Jesus eventually. But right now, they're still a little raw. Verse 27, God provides exactly what Saul needs. But Barnabas. It's a great but in the Bible. Praise God for Barnabas's. This, this name Barnabas, this guy... Barnabas literally means encourager, son of encouragement. Everyone stonewalls Paul, Saul, except for Barnabas the encourager. Man, you need to get you a Barnabas. There's a bunch in this church. Find one. Do life with them. And Barnabas doesn't just welcome Saul. He advocates for him. He risks his own neck to fight for Saul. Look, he took him and brought him to the apostles. That's a little risky. Barnabas is taking the killer of Christians to the leader of the church. And declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This welcoming of Saul then emboldened Saul to preach even more fervently. That's, you know, a healthy church tends to do that. When you're surrounded by other Christians encouraging you, accepting you, you tend to grow in your faith. And, and verse 28 
So Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now this is significant. These Hellenists are the same Hellenists that Saul teamed up with to kill Stephen. I mean, just think about that. He's teaming up with them to kill Stephen, and now he's preaching Christ to them. I mean, this is like a, a guy who used to be in PETA bringing a roast pig to a PETA conference. You know the animal rights people who are crazy a little bit? Hey, here's, I got you a chicken. Not going to go well. You see, that's what the gospel will do to you. It will flip your life upside down. The people you were sinning with, now you're preaching the gospel to. And the Hellenists, no surprise, they were seeking to kill him. Verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus was Saul's hometown. So they send him back home and say, lay low. And then from there, Saul will begin his missionary journeys, which we'll see throughout the book of Acts. Now, this passage clearly shows us the difficulty of the Christian life. And I want to give you three brief applications before we close that you can apply to your life today. Number one, can I encourage you to embrace discomfort and trial in the Christian life? Not be surprised by it, but to embrace it. You can have a good Christian life, but you can't avoid a hard Christian life. Jesus or comfort, choose. You can't have both. And the choice is so easy, isn't it? Give me Jesus. Give me the King of Kings. Give me the Lord of Lords. Give me the God of all comfort. Give me the Good Shepherd. Give me the perfect law obeyer. Give me the sin bearer. Give me the death conqueror. Give me the grave defeater. Give me the salvation achiever. Give me the triumphant returner. Give me Jesus every time. And so when we face discomfort and trial in the Christian life, we should not be looking up at God asking, God, why would you let this happen to me? We should be looking up, praising him and saying, God, I'm so excited to see what you're going to do in me through this. Magnify your strength through my weakness so the world can see it was only you. And as we suffer, we remember we follow a crucified king whose followers were then suffering as they followed Jesus. And so if your life is mostly comfortable, American Christian, if it's mostly pain-free, it might be worth asking, am I really following the crucified king? Jesus does not offer you a trial-free, pain-free life, but he does offer you purpose in the pain to display his strength in your weakness and to make you more like him. Second application, can I encourage you to be a Barnabas? To have lots of grace and be a Barnabas. We need more Barnabases in the church. Listen, can we have a lot of grace for one another? Because life is hard, right? Saul has shown us that. We don't need in the church more burden-adding, judgmental critics who are skeptical all the time. We don't need more Christians saying, is he really with us? We need more Christians like Barnabas who say, come on in, we're so glad you're here. Who assume the best of one another. You know, when my, this week, when my kids are sick and I'm struggling and I'm arguing with my wife and I feel not good enough and I, I'm just wrestling, the last thing in the world I need is a Christian coming in and saying, well, you should be doing this too. What I need is somebody like Barnabas who will encourage me, who will listen to me, who will pray for me, who will help me with the dishes, who advocates for me, who is a friend. So question for you, Christian, 
When people leave an interaction with you, do they feel a burden put on or a burden taken off? And just so you know, you follow the burden bearer, the one who takes all burdens from us. And so are you doing the same? Now, reality check, there is no one in this room who is in danger of being over-encouraged. There's no one. In fact, I would say most of us, if not all of us, are under-encouraged. So let's encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. Go find souls who are hurting, discouraged, and go encourage them. How can you be a Barnabas this week in our church family? Who can you drop food off of to someone's house? Who can you write a kind text to? Who can you speak a helpful, kind word to? Who can you stop and pray for? Who in this room can you tell how grateful you are for them? You know what? Make for every one criticism or correction, offer three encouragements to the people in your life. You know what? Let's, let's up that. Five encouragements for every one criticism or correction. People should be wanting to be around us. Are they? You know, the Bible calls Satan an accuser. Are you accusing? Or encouraging? Ephesians 4.29, Saul says, Christians should only say what builds one another up and gives grace to those who hear. And the good news is if we are Barnabases who, who care for Saul's, God uses these types of friendships to change the world. Do you know Saul and Barnabas will quite literally flip the world upside down? They're going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're a Christian this morning. The gospel reached Baltimore City this morning because of Saul and Barnabas' friendship. And maybe God wants to use you, future Barnabas, to encourage a Saul, and that friendship will make an eternal impact. But it starts with you listening, encouraging, caring, being a Barnabas like Christ was to us. And then final point, can I encourage you to have peace amidst your trials this, this morning and this week and this month and this year and this life? And last verse in the text, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church, like Saul, is facing threats externally and internally, but yet Inwardly, they have great peace. And if you're here this morning and you desire peace and you're not a Christian, go to Christ, the great peace giver, who offers righteousness and takes your sin so you can have peace with God. And if you're here and you're a Christian, we don't go to Netflix for our peace. We don't go to yoga for our peace. We don't go to our parents for our peace. We don't go to the church for our peace. We go to the peace giver, Jesus Christ. We take comfort in the fact that he had a hard life too. And he sympathizes with us in each of our trials. He was one who had no place to lay his head. He was afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was the sovereign king who chose to become our suffering servant. There is no pain that you're facing today that he does not know and does not supply fresh grace each morning for. This week when my son... 3M was yelling, Daddy, it hurts. Daddy hurts. I was willing to do anything to take away the pain, but there was nothing I could do. And we today reflect on the gospel that God could have taken away the pain brought upon his son as he bore the justice we deserved. 
But God, in his grace to us, turned the other way and only gave Jesus silence. And he bore pain so that one day we would never have to again. You know, I, as I went through that experience with my son, I was reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with him, and it tells of Jesus on the cross, and this is what the Jesus Storybook Bible describes Jesus on the cross. It says, Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when Jesus spoke, nothing happened. He turned away. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face. The face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. We look to the one who wept in our place and who will one day wipe away all the tears we could ever cry. And we rejoice that the greatest pain we would ever need to face, he bore it already for us. He conquered it for us. And one day he will press control, alt, delete on all pain. Yesterday, one of our pastors, Pastor Thomas Yoon, who's a professional chef, uh, cooked a four-course meal with desserts, really a five-course meal. And he invited me, but I wasn't able to go because, you know, my kids are sick and not doing great. And uh, Jen, his wife, who's my assistant, said, oh, I'm sorry you couldn't make it. I, I can send you a picture. <laughs> I said, I don't want a picture. I want a taste. And as we prepare for the Lord's table, friends, we get a taste of the coming feast. One day we will raise our glass and say, here's to the king who conquered pain for us. And we, like him, followed him in pain, but we were faithful only because of his grace. And now we rejoice as we experience all the pain that Satan can throw away because it is only accomplishing for us what we want to be made more like him and to display his strength. And as you're in the furnace, trust that whatever evil or discomfort you face, you would have sent it to you as well if you knew everything God knew. And one day you'll get to heaven and see all the trials he sent your way and say, that makes sense. I'm so glad you did that. The way the Puritan John Newton says it is, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Hold on to that quote today. Everything I have received in pain, I would have sent it to me too. And anything I don't get that I really want, I would have held it back from me too if I were him. And this morning, this evening, this week, look to the heavens at Christ who said, in this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We look to that king this morning and we trust him even when it hurts. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the trials that we face. We want to give you praise that you say no to us sometimes. We want to worship you for the medicine, the furnace, the fire, the cut you send our way because it only serves to heal us from sin. Give us faith today, God, to trust that whatever we face, it was sent by our loving Father to serve us, 
Give us a supernatural joy even as we weep today, God. Help us to be surprised when things are good, not when they're bad, and to give you thankfulness when they are good and thankfulness when they are bad. We pray for the new Christians in this room that they would be prepared to endure much suffering for the name. And we pray for those who've been in the faith for a while, who are discouraged, who are at their wit's end. God, meet them there and show them your power. Make us a happy church that is used to the fire so we come out molded in the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast. Thank you.